Good evening. I'm Kevin Marsh, and this is Ideas. Sleep, baby, sleep. Thy father guards the sheep. Thy mother shakes the dreamland tree, and from it fall sweet dreams for thee. What bothers me is the confusion about recognizing your own needs as a parent and then doing a kind of double speak or a double think and interpreting them that is what you want as somehow what the baby needs. That's really, I think, where the problem lies. Sleep, baby, sleep. In the sentimental mythology of our society, children hold a high place. In practice, we often find their needs to be in conflict with our own. We see their care not as a precious responsibility which enlarges our own humanity, but as a problem for which institutional solutions must be devised. The care of people, particularly those sometimes maddening people we call children, becomes secondary to our participation in the all-important activities of production and consumption. Both in the way we treat parents and in the way we pay their substitutes in daycare centers, we reveal our true belief that the care of young children is menial and unfulfilling work. Only those who feel cared for themselves can very easily care for others. And, and this is, I suppose, the prime reason why I wrote Who Cares, why I got so angry for mothers. Because if nobody cares for them, if they feel uncared for, whether in the sense of having been uncared for as children or in the sense of society not caring, not noticing them, not caring what they do, how can they be expected to pour out this kind of warm, sensitive, responsive caring on their children hour after hour and day after day? Tonight on Ideas, we present the second program in our series, The World of the Child, by David Cayley. The American obstetrician, Herbert Ratner, once described the situation of the newborn baby as a womb with a view. We begin our lives in virtual symbiosis with our mothers, and only gradually do we venture beyond the reach of her arms. The first three years of life comprise what the psychoanalyst Margaret Mahler calls the psychological birth of the self. And during those years, we remain both vulnerable and dependent. The question I want to pose in this program is whether we are allowing social and economic forces to conspire against our children by forcing them out of this dependence too soon. In Canada, as of 1979, over 45% of women with children under three were in some sort of paid employment. And demands now being heard for a universal daycare system are aimed at enabling all women to bear children without any prolonged interruption of their working lives. I seriously question whether such a system would be in the interests of young children or of many parents. There are, of course, many families for whom there is currently no choice in the matter of daycare. These may be single-parent families or families in which both parents must work 
just for subsistence. But for society as a whole, and for many individual families, there is a choice. And this choice needs to be faced squarely and without rationalization. Dr. Elliot Barker is a forensic psychiatrist and the founder of the Canadian Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. The question that ought to be asked that isn't is, what's the best for the child? What we get is this mealy-mouthed statement that, well, I've got rights too. Sure, you have rights as an adult, but when you bring an infant along, then I think the question has to be, while that infant is clearly helpless, clearly under your control, and clearly vulnerable for the rest of his life for what you're do going to do to it, you have a very serious obligation to ask yourself, what is in the interests of the baby, not my interests, for however many years? That's what's not being asked. They're making daycare arrangements not for infants. Nobody's setting up daycare because they think it's the best thing for infants at all. They're saying it's the easiest, best compromise. If I'm not happy as a mother, then the baby will. All these rationalizations. Show me a place where they're saying, I now believe that this kind of group care is absolutely the best thing for this infant in terms of his developing a capacity for trust and for empathy and affection down the line. Then I'll rush and put my next kid in it. But they're not anywhere saying that. Anywhere. Elliot Barker refers here mainly to infants. For slightly older children, say in the range of two to four, the matter is somewhat different. In the case of these children, distinct advantages are being claimed for daycares and other preschool institutions. The field of early childhood education has expanded very rapidly since the 1960s, and the idea that children really need professional, developmental, and educational services in early childhood has been widely accepted. The arguments in favor of daycare have also been bolstered by a number of studies purporting to show that good daycare does no observable harm. One of the best known of these studies was by Jerome Kagan and a number of colleagues from Harvard, where Kagan is a professor of developmental psychology. I asked him about his study, and he prefaced his reply with an important proviso on the usefulness of scientific research in this area. Unfortunately, for reasons I accept and believe in, ethical reasons. One cannot do experiments on human being on important issues. We are, our conclusions are very limited in their validity. We cannot randomly assign children to groups. Therefore, the, the wise citizen who is trying to use facts to make decisions should view most psychological conclusions with great caution. I didn't say ignore them. I didn't say snicker at them. Just view them with great caution, because one cannot do experiments on human beings the way you can on fruit flies. That's right. Our conclusion about daycare was very limited and constrained. It said, if a daycare center is good, good means only two infants, two or three infants to one caretaker, and maybe no more than three or four preschool children to one caretaker. The caretaker is a good caretaker, nurturant, likes children. The caretaker and the staff share the values of the family, and it's not too crowded. And they stimulate language and autonomy. Those are a lot of constraints. Under those conditions, children attending daycare centers don't seem to grow up any different, no better, no worse, from children at home. When you measure things like language development, 
aggressive behavior, normal emotional development, gross things. That's all the study said. Jerome Kagan's study looked at a number of issues, but I was particularly interested in his findings in the area of attachment. That is, are children in daycare as securely attached to their parents as children at home? His answer was equivocal. We don't know how to measure attachment. We use superficial measures, although they're the best available. With our superficial measures, we found no difference in attachment. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 20 years, when there are more sensitive measures of attachment, maybe daycare children are less closely attached. I, remember my earlier, my answer to your first question, the methods are crude. Given the methods we used, which were the best available, we found no difference in attachment. But that's like saying when they were inv investigating the pill, with those methods, they found no harm of the pill. Now, with better methods, they find, hey, wait a minute, the pill is dangerous. Science is always tentative. So maybe there is a difference in attachment. We can't detect it yet. Jerome Kagan's cautions about the limited validity of his findings were also echoed by Burton White. White is the author of The First Three Years, a former colleague of Kagan's at Harvard, and now the director of the Parent Education Center in Newton, Massachusetts. He suggests that the same cautions should apply to all the research studies which have been done in this field. What it amounts to is, is the following. First of all, the bulk of the studies that have been done have been done in non-representative places. The typical study has been done at a university-affiliated place. You can't generalize to substitute care uh, very readily from such research. In fact, you can't do it at all. Second, there uh, is no evidence of long-term impact because we haven't had long terms yet. Third, these studies don't address the question of what's best for children. They're addressing the question, is there any harm being done? That's not the same question. Underlying the problem here is the ambivalence and indeed the deep guilt that most young families, especially young women, feel after the fact. Okay? By virtue of long-standing traditions, if you do this with your child, if you put your child into a substitute care system most of the day when the child is a few months old, you find it very difficult to sleep easily at night subsequently. And so what we have is a whole bunch of uh, statements coming out in an attempt to keep the guilt down. Statements like, it's not the quantity of time you spend with a child, it's the quality of time. Right? As if after a nine-hour day out of the home, when you come home with your six-month-old child and it's seven o'clock in the evening and you've got something to do around the house, you can now spend a half hour of marvelous time that will make a difference. There's a lot of craziness being surfaced about these things. So there isn't enough evidence of consequence. Uh, it isn't done in representative places. It doesn't ask the question of what's best for the child. Uh, it is just too risky at this point to assume that the, you don't do the child uh, any damage of any consequence when you transfer that primary responsibility to some other uh, institution. A further problem with the research on daycare is that it comes, for the most part, from a tradition of experimental psychology which deals in measurable quantities. It can thus tell us virtually nothing about those processes which more interpretive, psychoanalytically-oriented theories have supposed are going on during the first three years. Eric Erickson, for example, suggests that the preeminent value created in the first year of life is the capacity for trust, something which no one has yet found a way to measure. 
and even if the capacities for trust, empathy, and affection could be measured, their absence would not necessarily show up in childhood. It follows, I think, that current studies on daycare are not a secure basis for decisions about what is in the long-term interest of children. One thing, however, that I think is established by the studies that we have is that truly excellent daycare amounts to the provision of alternative mothering, which reminds me a bit of Mark Twain's statement that Shakespeare's plays were either written by Shakespeare or by someone else of the same name. British developmental psychologist Penelope Leach. I think it is proven beyond doubt, and thats a, I know that's an extreme statement. It's meant to be. I do now, in the last three to five years, take it as proven that the young human infant is designed to develop with and through interaction with one and or more particular adult human beings. I honestly believe that this now needs to be taken as a starting point. It doesn't matter how many other people the baby has. I have a strong feeling that the more people that are special to a baby, the better off he is. But one special person who is emotionally special to him, he must have if he is to develop intellectually, socially, emotionally, as well as physically, as far as he's designed to do. The question that follows from this conclusion is whether such care is possible in an institutional setting. It is actually impossible within an employment situation to replace a mother with an employee cannot be done. This is partly, of course, because what is expected of mothers is far beyond what is expected of any employee. But allowing for any kind of time off, promotion, on-the-job training, vacations, anything of this kind, you cannot provide a child with a continuous or more or less continuous mother figure in an institutional setting. Now, this is even before we start talking about how many infants economics demand that one person should care for. Um, once you add in that factor and say that this group of employees are to care for six or eight or ten babies, of course the whole thing becomes ludicrous because you can't do it for multiple children. To meet the needs of even twins, any mother of twins will tell you, in the sensitive way we most of us reckon to meet the needs of a single baby is in itself impossible. But the other point about institutional care, even on a daily basis, is that a baby that's in that kind of care is in a situation where he's being cared for by somebody who, even if she was there yesterday, because it wasn't her day off, doesn't know what happened to that child in the 12 hours that he's been at home. Now, when a child is growing and changing and developing and working very hard at particular areas of his development, even 12 hours can put you totally out of step. Caring for a baby non-continuously is a continual process of experiment, and it may not hurt the baby for one afternoon, but it's awful bad for babies if all of their infant lives they are having to communicate with people to whose, whom their language is foreign. So far, we have been discussing daycare in the context of extremely expensive and relatively high-quality research schemes. 
the real world of daycare is something else again. In 1979, of the half a million children between two and six with working mothers, only 15% were enrolled in any supervised or approved form of care. The rest were cared for in unsupervised private settings. In a book called The Kin Trade, Laura Johnson and Janice Deneen report the results of a Metropolitan Toronto Social Planning Council study which tried to assess the quality of this informal care. The researchers found on average what they called adequate custodial care. In the sample of 281 homes, there were a few cases of genuinely stimulating and varied care, and at the other extreme, a few cases of outright abuse. But in general, they found indifference. Most of the caregivers were not very interested in the children as individuals, and in a significant minority of cases, the children were simply ignored altogether. The most rapidly growing type of daycare is provided by the profit-making commercial centers, which are usually run as franchises of large chains. Valerie Saransky of the University of Michigan has reported on the operation of these centers in a recent book called The Erosion of Childhood. She finds them at best to be highly institutionalized, age-segregated mini-schools with such disproportionately high child-staff ratios as to virtually rule out any real individual attention to the children. Faced with the poor quality of both commercial and informal substitute care, most proponents of improved daycare services have argued for a massive expansion of state-run institutional care. But the question remains whether such care can ever really replace even an average quality of parental care. Otto Weininger is the chairman of the Early Childhood Section of the Department of Applied Psychology at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. I think that the quality in, in, uh, in most of the daycare that I visited, and uh, I visited a fair number over the past several years, um, has really been pretty poor. And um, I see it as being poor because I don't really think that they take into account um, what the child comes to the daycare with. I don't think that they take into account the kind of night that the child has had or whether he or she has eaten breakfast, um, how long they've been awake, or any of those things uh, that I think are so important in the lives of young children. But even perhaps even more importantly, this daycare acts as a kind of um, a very serious interruption to the flow of experience for the child. Um, by that I mean that the, the, the child and the parents or parent has been having uh, certain kinds of experiences in the morning or in the evening, and they don't have these same experiences during the day. <clears throat> They're away from each other. Um, the, certainly, children go away from their parents, and that's not at all remarkable. But the, the more remarkable aspect of it is that, that these children are now placed into centers which have to be institutionalized. And um, it's, it's that aspect of the separation of the experiences of the child and the parents by the institutionalization of the child that I think is the most damaging, or has the most damaging aspect to the child's life. Institutionalization in this context means several things for children. It means separation from the day-to-day -day world of home and neighborhood. It means the loss of the opportunity to do what you want, when you want to do it, including sometimes just doing nothing at all. And it means the loss of privacy and solitude. These things, of course, are not always present in the home, just as they may sometimes be present in the very best daycare centers. 
but to some degree at least, numbers alone dictate that institutional constraints will dictate a good deal of what happens in daycare. These daycare settings are so institutionalized that the children are told it's now 10.30 and we'll go to the bathroom, whether you have to or you don't have to. It's now 11 o'clock and we're all going to go out. It's now um, 11.30 and we're going to start our snack. It's now um, whatever time it is and we're going to do this. And we do this as a group. Now, I don't think that they have any real opportunity of doing anything else if they're going to function, maybe even if they're going to survive. But children don't behave that way. Children don't react that way. Children aren't groups. They are, they're very individualistic. They have very idiosyncratic needs at times when other kids don't have any of those needs at all. And I don't think that daycares take that into account. You go into some daycare settings and you find that all the children are being lined up to move in. And when you line up four-year-olds, they don't line up very well. When you line up three-year-olds, they don't line up well at all. But the daycare center people say you have to line up. You have to hold hands. Well, maybe that's okay for some, but it's not okay for all. And I don't think that that's teaching them anything. See, that, that aspect of teaching, like, I want you to share with Mary because Mary needs to have some of that. And if you tell that to a three-year-old, that makes about as much sense as if I quoted, if you quoted to me some fantastic mathematical theoretical formula, and I wouldn't have really any understanding of it. Well, that's just about the same thing that happens to a three-year-old child. They don't have any understanding of the idea of sharing nor do they have any idea of be sensitive to. At three years, I'm not sensitive at all. Hell, I'm really egocentric. I'm narcissistic. The world revolves around me. Now you, daycare person, are taking that world away from me prematurely and at such a time when I haven't yet understood that I need to be involved with other people and you're forcing me into involvement. You're doing this in a premature way and I think that if we do this in a premature way, we cut off a lot of the skills of that child later on. Another concern which Otto Weininger expresses about daycare is the fact that it may be forcing some children into premature independence as a result of prolonged and daily separation from home and parents before the child is actually ready to take that step for herself. I think we are um, developing a particular kind of person by these, this early institutionalization. We're insisting on a kind of a, an early independence. And I think that when we insist on, an, on too early an independence in young children, three years old, four years old, that what we do is we create this child in such a way as to force them to block some of the, what I'll call, dependency needs, which is a kind of a take care of me, a nurturing, a care for me sort of capacity, which I think we all have, but we gradually sort of block over. And we gradually block this over as we mature and as we grow up. But I think that we can do this prematurely. And if we do it prematurely, what we tend to do is we have a child who is not going to be close to an adult, who's going to have difficulty being taken care of, who's going to um, fight when you try to hug them, who's going to say, um, I'm independent and don't come near me. Now, part of that, not all of it, but part of it is as a, res as a, as a result of putting them in centers, I think, at too early an age. And for me, uh, too early an age would certainly be the two-year-old, would be too early an age. It is often said that if dependency is frustrated, the result will be a clinging rather than an independent child. But I think it may also be true that the frustrated child will not necessarily cling to the one who is frustrating him. Instead, his attachment may be transferred to more reassuring persons or objects. The well-known phenomenon of the security blanket is a small case in point. 
our behavior as consumers may be a larger instance of the same type of displacement. In the case of the daycare center, what follows from a premature disruption of the bond to parents may be a type of substitute bonding to peers. Otto Weininger. I think that the child who is not uh, effectively attached to the parent, and I think that uh, attachment processes will be watered down and minimized when the parent has to drop their child off in the daycare, uh, you know, from three or four months of age and on, and that that's going to have an effect on the processes that the child is going to go through in terms of learning, in terms of attachment, later on to other people, in terms of rebelliousness, and in terms of not listening to adults. Now, it, daycare is essentially a world of children, and they do form peer attachments. That peer attachment may be, in fact, the saving grace for those children. Because adults can't interact with children effectively when they have to take care of four or five or six, and there's one adult to do that number, children are lost. Since the adult can't deal with this, what the child usually does is turn to peers. And um, I think that it is the peer interaction that effectively stems some of the emotional problems that may actually be present in daycare. So it's not the adults, and it's not that they are effective, but it's really that what we've done is we've offered their, the children other children to be with and to play with. If we allow them to play, I think that there'll be less problems for those, for those children. What Otto Weininger is here calling attachment to peers should not be confused with spontaneously formed friendships. He is referring to a substitution of peers for parents, which may be a saving grace in the context of daycare, but which may also weaken the parent-child bond in later childhood and adolescence. And this I think we very often see. In fact, the separation of people into peer groups from the daycare center to the old age home, is already one of the most distinctive features of our society. It is impossible to generalize safely about children's development, and this applies even more to emotional than to physical development. What one child can handle at two another child can't handle until four. Daycare may be beneficial for one child, damaging for another. Babies are individuals virtually from conception, and there is much about their lives and ours which neither nature nor nurture can explain. Nevertheless, I believe that in general, children are better off with their parents during their early years. And what I want to examine in the remainder of this program are the obstacles to this arrangement. In 1979, in a passionate, polemical book entitled Who Cares?, British developmental psychologist Penelope Leach issued a cry from the heart on behalf of parents and their young children. She argued that despite a mask of sentimental rhetoric, society in fact placed very little value on child-rearing, and the evidence which she cited encompassed both the physical and the social environments in which mothers, and occasionally fathers, bring up children. The feeling in most areas, particularly in big city living, is that cities are built primarily for the automobile and for the automobile as used by wage earners and money spenders. In other words, the whole 
day-to-day life revolves around people who are commuting to work, who are working, who are snatching a quick lunch from work, who are collecting their money and are then spending that money on entertainment, on eating out and whatever. The fact that there are young children, the workers of the future, being reared in and among all that is something which uh, a man from Mars would find it very difficult to notice, I think. He would have to go to very particular places, open spaces, parks, where there happen to be playgrounds and so on, really to know that there are any small children and any of these strange human beings called parents around the place at all. Along with that sort of physical ignoring of young families, I think we have extremely peculiar attitudes to the young of our own species. Um, I mean, it's it's a, a well-known old joke that the British like dogs better than children. But, you know, it's really true. If, if you are in a street and a, a little dog comes bounding along, smiling and wagging its tail, pretty well everybody will smile down at it and hold out a hand and, and generally look interested and warm. But let a small child run away from a harassed mother down a crowded street and you're very lucky if anybody stops it going in the road let alone smiling or holding out a hand. Anyone who has spent time caring for young children will, I think, recognize how apt Penelope Leach's observations are. Children are noticed as potential consumers, and the candies in the supermarket are always seductively displayed at child's eye level. But rare indeed in public places are the play spaces or the tolerant attitudes which would actually be of assistance to parents. Difficulties, of course, there have always been, but more recent developments have also dimmed the prestige of full-time mothering. I think the increase in the numbers of people being expected to carry full-time paid employment is a very real factor. Now, it's odd to be talking about this now when we're all suffering from unemployment, but that isn't a matter of uh, social preference or social pressure, it's a question of economics. Nobody, as far as I know, wants the kind of unemployment rates we now have. Within that, I think that the that part of the women's movement which felt it necessary to fight for women's rights in the labour marketplace was a very real factor. Now, if if I could just enlarge on that for a minute, because it's very easy to be taken wrong... I think that women's rights had to be fought for first in terms of equal rights to work, in terms of equal pay for equal work. But I think it was forgotten in the excitement of the moment, if you like, that women who are mothers are still women and that if you are fighting for women's rights to work and women's rights to equal pay, it is vitally important that you should fight just as hard for the rights of those women who elect to do something different from competing with males in the marketplace. And I do think that this was forgotten. For a while, certainly in Britain, there was very great pressure on all women to seek paid or professional work. There was a real tendency to suggest to women who chose to stay at home and care for their own small children, a real tendency to suggest to them that they were letting down their sex, that they were letting down the cause, that they were letting down themselves. And I think this was extremely damaging 
because God knows childcare is a difficult enough job without people also implying to you um, that you ought to be doing something different. In Canada today, nearly half of all mothers with children under three are working. Some are working by clear choice. But among those forced into the workforce by either social or economic pressure, there may be many who would choose to be with their children if circumstances or social priorities were different. Some fathers might also opt to be with their young children if the choice were available. It is a question of where society puts its priorities and its resources. What I really feel is that when provision is made at all for young families, it tends to be in ways which seem to be designed to help mothers out of mothering rather than to help them with it or within it. In other words, the most money and the most time and the most publicity is expended on schemes for providing workplace nurseries or creches or this or that or the other, ways in which a mother may legitimately leave her baby. If a comparable amount of effort were spent on finding ways of helping her enjoy the job she's doing with that baby, I think we might see a very different picture of demand. Penelope Leach's point here becomes a very important one when we consider the current demands for free, universally available daycare, which are being put forward by sections of the trade union movement, the NDP, and the women's movement. Such a proposal would require a massive social investment. Would comparable resources be made available to those who wish to rear children at home? The question is rarely even asked. But the preference for socialized childcare as a solution to the problem of the economic inequality of women does, I think, indicate an important weakness in the political program of feminism. In this regard, I would like to quote sociologist Alice Rossi. In an essay entitled The Biosocial Side of Parenthood, she speaks of the tendency to confuse difference with inequality. As far as male and female are concerned, she writes, difference is a biological fact, whereas equality is a political, ethical, and social concept. In other words, if society attributes inequality to women on the basis of biology, the solution does not necessarily lie in minimizing or rejecting the influence of biology. The point is reinforced by Louise Kaplan, a New York psychoanalyst and the author of Oneness and Separateness. In the typical disputes between nature and nurture, it always seems that nature comes out on the short end, uh, and people who want to be liberals, progressives, uh, want to change the world and make it a better place, get very suspicious every time somebody says something is natural, something is inborn, something is innate. Uh, and the idea that many social reformers have is that society can do anything, that society can enforce its template on nature and make human beings into anything they want. And uh, people who say uh, otherwise are reactionaries. Anyone who says that something is biological or natural to the human being is a reactionary who wants to keep the status quo. Uh, my idea is that biology is our protection against society, that 
because there are biological givens that are the same in all human beings, the human spirit is such that it can resist being taken over by society, that society uh, cannot do whatever it wants to human beings. And biology ought to be respected because it's what protects us from social domination. In the light of Louise Kaplan's analysis and of the remarks I quoted earlier from Alice Rossi, I think it would be helpful to try and offer a broader definition of the women's movement than is commonly understood by the term feminism. It has been my thesis in this program that children need their parents, and particularly their mothers, in their early years. Since this position has sometimes been typed as reactionary, I think that it is important to establish that there has been a strand in women's thinking which has recognized this need, and indeed gone farther to recognize the mother's need for her child. I would distinguish two broad and divergent tendencies within the women's movement. The first has been concerned with the elimination of inequality by the elimination of differences. The second has been concerned with the recovery of women's power in the context of recognized biological differences. Perhaps in this second case, it would make sense to speak of an ecological feminism. Under this rubric, we could include the struggle to end the medical domination of pregnancy and childbirth and the recovery of breastfeeding as a critical component in the relationship between mother and child. This section of the women's movement has struggled, in other words, not to liberate women from motherhood, but rather to liberate motherhood from the repression and domination it has suffered at the hands of a patriarchal society. As an example of this struggle, I would cite the La Leche League, an organization which began as a self-help group of breastfeeding mothers in Chicago in the mid-1950s and went on to form the popular base for the recovery of breastfeeding, as well as stimulating the scientific research which led to the discovery of breastfeeding's emotional and immunological benefits to the child. Marion Thompson was one of the founders of the La Leche League and is now its president. I remember with one of my babies, I was, uh, the baby was crying and I was in a grocery store and the woman said to me, uh-oh, he needs his bottle. And I said, oh, he's not taking a bottle. And she said, what? She says, how do you feed him? You know, uh, it just totally had left women's consciousness that this is what their breasts were originally for. Um, so you, we thought that uh, around when we started Little H.A. in the middle 50s, that really not very many women were nursing their babies because the amount, uh, a number of women nursing was decreasing all the time and it was hard to even find another woman who had actually done it. When I mean, you can imagine us finding seven women, but this was out of, you know, hundreds of people that we knew. Um, but what we found out was that um, the desire to breastfeed is sort of a deep down desire in women. Most women have this instinct or this urge if you'd call it that and that as soon as women knew that there was some way that they could get some help they wanted to go back to breastfeeding their baby. I mean, we were amazed from the beginning of La Leche League that so many women heard about what we were doing because we didn't even advertise in the beginning. I mean, it was, uh, the world was so uncomfortable with the word breast even in those days that we used this uh, name La Leche, which is a shrine in Florida. In fact, it's the oldest shrine in the United States. And it's a shrine of the Virgin Mary breastfeeding the Christ child. Um, 
because we couldn't say breastfeeding or that you know we were helping mothers to breastfeed if we were going to be written about or, or put a meeting notice in the paper. Um, so people were uncomfortable with that aspect of breastfeeding, but women did want to breastfeed. And we found it was almost like having a tiger by the tail because as soon as we started, women started coming and they haven't stopped yet. Uh, despite the fact that formula was being sold in the United States and being promoted in the United States, uh, women continue to want to breastfeed their babies till where I've been told it's somewhere like 74% of the babies in the United States start out being breastfed. In connection with what Marion Thompson says here, I think that a sharp distinction needs to be drawn between the sentimental idealization of motherhood, perpetuated largely by self-interested male experts, and the recovery of natural feeling, which is evident in the growth of the La Leche League. And in this regard, it is important to note that the rediscovery of breastfeeding influenced, and at the same time was part of, a larger pattern of change in the consciousness of both men and women. Women were also surprised for the closeness they began to feel toward those babies. In fact, I had a number of women who, who had bottle-fed previous children who, when they started uh, breastfeeding, said, you know, you never told me how close I was going to feel to this baby. Uh, they, it's true they had to stay home with their babies, but they liked being with their babies. Uh, they weren't feeling tied down or martyrish, even though a lot of people thought they were. Uh, the fact that they were having to carry that baby around really wasn't that much of a, a problem because they enjoyed those babies. And so as a result of this, mothers who, for example, breastfed a baby when they would go on to have another baby would be very concerned about the kind of childbirth experience they were going to have. They wanted to make sure that they would have a doctor who would allow them to work with their own bodies in giving birth, who wasn't going to force unnecessary anesthetics or analgesia on them, or do anything that would interfere with the optimal birth experience because they realized this was important, not only important in terms of starting breastfeeding, but important in its effects on the baby and its effects on the beginning of this relationship. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of the, um, the, the trend toward home birth has grown out of breastfeeding. It's grown out of couples who've had a very special experience with a baby and want to continue having better experiences with the next baby. And another thing that I could mention is the whole um, family bed uh, issue. I remember when I was bringing up um, uh, my first children, and I had a Better Homes and Gardens baby book, and it was very um, clear in that book that you were never to take a child in bed with you, or a baby, or, or an older child, that for some reason this was a very terrible thing to do. And so I would, in the middle of the night, sit up and breastfeed a baby, sitting on the edge of the bed or in a chair, always afraid that I was going to fall asleep and that baby was going to roll out of my arms, you know, onto the floor. And it wasn't until I had that fourth baby and was given permission to keep that baby in bed with me that I realized how much simpler that made life because I would go to sleep and the baby would go to sleep and I wouldn't roll over and crush the baby or neither did my husband. Uh, and I realized that around the world probably more babies are kept in bed with their parents than are not. Um, 
this of course led for some families who found their children had special needs to be close and of course that's a very normal need not an abnormal one to allow their children in bed with them even when they got older uh, not feeling uncomfortable about having a toddler or a young child who wanted to stay close to somebody at night and realizing that this being a normal need it should be attended to if possible and realizing also that when you attend to the needs of your children you're going to have much more secure children who become much more independent, able to think for themselves, and who feel very good about themselves later on in life. Before I introduced Marion Thompson, I proposed the distinction between two divergent strains in women's consciousness. To some extent, I think that this polarization is real, but there is also evidence of an effort to overcome it. Betty Friedan, for example, has called for a re-examination of feminist views on the family, in her book, The Second Stage. And Marion Thompson indicates that many feminists have changed their opinion of the work of the La Leche League. When it started out, they were very anti-breastfeeding mothers. They were very anti-La Leche League because they felt we were keeping women at home and these women didn't belong at home. In fact, we had some of our meetings picketed because they felt we were very anti-women being liberated. And yet now they are some of our strongest supporters. In fact, the National Organization of Women have very often lent their legal services to breastfeeding mothers who found themselves being discriminated against in getting for example, unemployment compensation. A similar change is recognized by Penelope Leach in her British milieu, but she raises doubts as to whether it is more than superficial. My feeling is that although very few members of the women's movement will now say the kind of thing I was suggesting, will actually come out and say, um, you ought to be out working, it's wrong for you to waste yourself sitting at home with your children, the kind of thing they would have said, many of them would have said five years ago. They won't actually say that now. But I feel that the change is nevertheless superficial because the the phrases that are used now are, for instance, to campaign for mothers to have the right to choose whether to care for their own children or not, which sounds absolutely fine and dandy in principle, but leaves out the children. Um, So that I don't really feel that the priority, which for me starts with, with the premise that in this day and age, if you have a child, you have that child because you feel that you can and want to rear it, the premise, therefore, that to some extent the child comes first is, is still not present. This question of the best interests of the child brings us back to our starting point and once again to the question of daycare. In closing, I would like to quote from Burton White on this subject. White has made himself popular in some circles and unpopular in others by taking a strong public position on daycare. This position is that while part-time substitute care may be in the best interests of both parents and young children, giving them a needed break from each other, full-time substitute care poses real dangers. The kinds of substitute care available range from one person coming to a home to take care of one child to one child going into somebody else's home to be cared for by himself to a small group of children in someone's home other than their own and on to... Uh, huge numbers of children in centers. 
On the whole, uh, there's no reason to think that the typical arrangement, and by that I mean, let's say, the average arrangement, mixing them all together, thinking in terms of the wide variety of types of people doing this work and so forth, there's no reason to think that that's uh, a particularly rich kind of circumstance for a child who's going through this once-in-a-lifetime marvelous introduction to the world. Compare it with what the average kind of baby gets in their own home. They may not have a well-to-do family. They may not have a great many toys. They may not even have a wonderful diet. But they generally have, from their parents or grandparents, a kind of attention, dedication, and interest that they can't get anywhere else. No one responds to the achievements of a new child with quite the same enthusiasm and interest as the two parents and the four grandparents. And this seems to us to be the heart of the matter. Uh, in the first six months of life, children have to have an awful lot of attention for their fundamental, lifelong emotional well-being. Everybody agrees on that. They're most likely to get that from one of those six people. From six months to three years, <clears throat> the developments in the areas of language and curiosity and social skills and so forth seem clearly, clearly in many studies to go best when the child spends a lot of time every day with somebody who has this irrational commitment to her. You cannot get that in a center with multiple numbers of children. You're not very likely to get it in any installation, although I have to admit, once in a while, you'll find a marvelous mother substitute that comes to the home. There's no question, but that happens from time to time. Uh, in surveys recently done, in this last year for that matter, in the States, it's reported that the average hourly rate of child care workers is about $3 an hour. Uh, there is no perfect correspondence between the amount of money you make and your talent, but my God, uh, to assume that you're going to get loving, informed, interested, spirited treatment out of somebody who uh, is at the very bottom of the American wage scale is really a very chancy assumption when you're dealing with something as precious as the, the basic foundations of a human life. So all in all, I have very little sympathy for people who claim that substitute care is going to do good things for children in most cases. By the way, I should point out that this is not mothering that I'm talking about. It is parenting. Men can raise babies just as well as women, as far as we can tell. And I'm not advocating that women stay at home during the first years of their children's lives. I'm advocating that people who choose to create new life mutually discuss how that baby's needs are going to be met and the more the partners share equally in the process, the better off everybody will be. Not that parents, that babies must have men in their lives. There's no evidence to support that. But that both parents are going to have a lot more fun if they share that job and probably do it better than if only one of them is basically assigned the full-time responsibility for it. Our society currently faces a very serious choice in the matter of daycare. I believe that if children are to develop to their full potential, they must be permitted to guide their own development at their own pace in an environment over which they can assert at least some control. These demands cannot be met within any comprehensive institutional framework which our current society 
would be capable of either devising, staffing, or paying for. Indeed, it seems to me positively perverse to try and transfer to a professional bureaucracy a function for which nature has so precisely equipped parents. There are no perfect parents, and some are very destructive indeed. In these cases, daycare may be a kind of liberation for children, and this is all to the good. But I think that on average, the only place that society is likely to find the resources for child-rearing already mobilized and committed is in the person of parents. These are the resources which we must cherish, support, and develop if our children are to fulfill the magnificent potential of their early years. Society can just as easily pay for parental care as for daycare. Sleep, baby, sleep. Thy father guards the sheep. Thy mother shakes the dreamland tree, and from it fall sweet dreams for thee. Sleep, baby, sleep. On Ideas Tonight, The World of the Child, Part 2, prepared and presented by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropolo. Technical operations for tonight's program by Lorne Talk. Special thanks to Alison Moss, Susan Cramond, and Ann Irwin. We've prepared a reading list to accompany this series. For your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Executive producer of Ideas is Geraldine Sherman. I'm Kevin Marsh. A printed transcript of The World of the Child will be available following broadcast of the series. To order a copy, send your request to CBC Transcripts, The World of the Child, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W 1E6, enclosing a check or money order for $350, payable to CBC Transcripts. Please allow six weeks for delivery.
します。